0: This is Fifteen Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs, featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. Fifteen Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin.
1: Hi, I'm Joan Newberger, editor of Not Even Past, and today we're here with um, Jacqueline Jones. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Joan. Jackie Jones is uh, a specialist in American history, and um, she's a regular contributor to Not Even Past. In fact, she was the first, her book was the first book we featured when we started, not even past. And she's just published a new book called A Dreadful Deceit, The Myth of Race in the Colonial, From the Colonial Era to Obama's America. Um, Jackie, let's start with the paradoxes at the heart of the book. It's really a book that's founded on a paradox and full of paradoxes. There's no historical or biological basis for um, racial ideas. Um, But the concept of race is at the center of American history and American life. Uh, And the use of race has become a tool for creating and promoting and maintaining um, power hierarchies. And yet, um, the first paradox is that before the American Revolution, you argued that slavery um, existed without any sort of basis in race, or ideas about race justifying it.
0: Right, the slaveholders I looked at in 17th century Maryland and also 18th century South Carolina were looking for the most efficient workforces they could find, and those happened to be Africans and people of African descent, because in this Atlantic world of colliding empires, Africans were the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. They did not have a nation state to rescue or redeem them, they did not command the high seas, And it was for this reason that Africans and their descendants were enslaved. The slaveholders I looked at did not talk about race. They did not use that as a reason for enslaving a group of people.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And then... Uh, so then, what happened once the American, once the Constitution's written? Why does that promote the uh, need for racial ideas or ideas about race?
0: I think actually, going back a little earlier during the American Revolution, we find Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, writing a book called Notes on the State of Virginia, 1781, and it's in that book that he begins to speculate about natural or racial differences between blacks and whites Mm -hmm. and I think he had to do that because he had to justify the fact that a whole group of men men of African descent were left out of the body politic Mm -hmm. so there's a paradox that the uh, author of the Declaration of Independence is one of the first people to engage in what we today would call scientific racism and he had to speculate about natural differences between the races in order
1: to justify the exclusion of black men from uh, rights. Uh, Talk about paradoxes and contradictions. We just two months ago featured Denise Spellberg's book that shows Thomas Jefferson using ideas about natural law to justify the inclusion of people of all religions. And now using racial ideas to exclude some people from the body politic.
0: Well, and we have to remember that Jefferson himself was a slaveholder. Right. And when he describes the differences between blacks and whites, he says, for instance, that black people can work in very hot temperatures, very cold temperatures. Black people can work without much in the way of sleep. Black people don't grieve over lost loved ones. These are all generalizations uh, based on his self-interest as a slaveholder. Mm -hmm. So we do see that this myth of race is very much a product of its time and place.
1: Mm So let's move forward a little in time. Then, after the Constitution codified slave, slavery, many um, northern communities passed laws abolishing slavery, but at the same time they passed other legislation to exclude blacks from um, freely participating in the economy and also to limit their political, uh, their legal rights. And how, how did that play out? In, in you look at Providence, Rhode Island. How yes, did that I play look out at
0: uh, a woman, a savvy black businesswoman named Eleanor Eldridge, to reveal some. of the contradictions during this period. This was a period in northern history where black people were considered naturally poor and dependent, that many of them had been released from slavery with very little in the way of resources, and so they were very poor. But at the same time in Providence, there was an idea that black people were predatory. They would not rest until they had taken the jobs of white people. And this, I think, shows how contradictory this mythology of race can be in any one particular time and place. The idea that blacks are simultaneously very lazy, very dependent, and at the same time that they're very ambitious, very aggressive, very assertive, and wanting their rights and wanting good
1: jobs and so forth. And um, Eldridge's life really exemplifies that. She was a Ambitious woman.
0: She was, and she was a whitewasher, a painter, uh, she uh, was a laundress. Most of all, though, she was a real estate investor and she accumulated money, invested in real estate, overextended herself, uh, and found herself at the mercy of not only creditors but sheriffs and other local officials who really wanted to deprive her of her property. Mm-hmm. She belied this stereotype of the dependent um, African-American, and she relied at the same time on her patrons, on employers. Otherwise, she would have been totally at the mercy of whites who wanted her property.
1: Mm -hmm. So they they could use her dependence on them to show her, to to argue for her weakness and justify, um, and explain away her ambition.
0: Well, she certainly needed patrons. And at the same time, they could say that she was exceptional. Mm -hmm. And so they could hold in their minds the stereotype. At the same time, they could acknowledge that she was very different. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, one of the areas uh, later in American history, really throughout American history, where this contradiction plays out is in um, uh, in, in the area of education. So this myth develops that blacks, um, because of inherent natural weaknesses or flaws, um, can't really learn. And yet at the same time, People, communities felt the need to pass legislation to exclude them from education. Yes. Um, and how does that play it? That, you, you discuss a, an example in Mississippi in the early 20th century. Yes,
0: I mean, I think this is an interesting paradox. Uh, on the one hand, whites claim black people cannot learn. On the other hand, they feel they need to pass legislation to prevent black people f- from learning and going to school. Um, actually, it was one Northerner who said um, black people will never be able to rise because of their natural um, limits, uh, we should not permit them to rise here, (laughs) (laughs) suggesting that it was going to take some legislation to keep them from school, going to school. And it is a point point that I make um, throughout the book that a lot of discriminatory legislation actually reveals that white people know black people are just like them. It's kind of counterintuitive, but the legislation is to keep black people from doing what white people know all people want to do, to get an education for their kids, to live a safe and secure lives, to get good jobs. So we think of this legislation as highlighting the differences between the races. But in fact, it reveals the similarities between blacks and whites. And that's why whites were so eager to protect their own privilege and to enact legislation to prevent
1: blacks from sharing in those privileges. Mm -hmm. And um, tell us about so tell us about William Holtzclaw and his efforts to open a school in Mississippi. What happens to him? He
0: was born in the late 19th century in Alabama, very poor parents. He went to Tuskegee Institute, which was run by Booker T. Washington. And then Holtzclaw himself went to found his own small Tuskegee, called the Utica Institute in Mississippi. He founded that school in 1903. And he lived during a period when white politicians were really demonizing black people, and especially black men, arguing um, that they were black men were naturally aggressive and vicious. And uh, James K. Vardaman, the governor at the time, argued that black people should have no schooling whatsoever. They should not learn to read and write. They should not get any industrial training because they should stay as field workers for their whole lives. And Holtzclaw, by opening this small industrial institute, really um, fought against that imperative. And it's a fascinating story of the way he had to negotiate these extremely vicious
1: politics during this time. hmm so, um, one of the things that your book does really well, I think, is show how these ideas mutated whenever, in, in whatever context they f- found, people found themselves in. Um, and by the time we get to the late 20th century, uh, leftist ideas enter into black politics to help challenge some of these contradictions. And you tell a really fascinating story about uh, Simon Owens, a black communist labor or, uh, activist, Um, Tell us a little about him and what he was facing.
0: Yes, I mean, first of all, the premise of the book really is that we have to look at these racial mythologies in a particular time and place. We can't make sweeping generalizations about them throughout American history because they very much are contingent on the political economy of anyone time or place. Simon P. Owens is probably best known as Charles Denby, the author of an autobiography called Indignant Heart, and his life, too, is full of contradictions. On the one hand, he was very prescient about the role of technology in industrial workplaces in um, exploiting black and white men together. On the other hand, he argued against uh, uh, United Automobile workers' leaders and Socialist Workers' Party leaders who argued that uh, blacks were just a subset of the working class Mm -hmm. and that no one need pay attention to their unique history or their unique vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, he was very much class-oriented and determined that blacks and whites should march together Uh, into the future, aware of the devastating effects of these industrial technologies. On the other hand, he was firmly convinced that black history was different and that the black struggle should play a critical part in any kind of radical politics.
1: Mm -hmm. And he was facing uh, white uh, labor force in the auto industry where whites were working very hard to keep blacks from joining together in the kind of class... Um, solidarity that his Marxist Ideology led him to think of that.
0: Yes, he was frustrated because uh, often the leaders of the UAW would come out with some very egalitarian pronouncements, but the social division of labor in auto factories remained uh, very much to the detriment of black workers. They were the last hired. They uh, worked in the most dangerous and arduous jobs, and many shop floor stewards did not challenge that social division of labor. They kept blacks in these low-paying, menial positions, and um, that infuriated Owens, and he found himself very much at odds with UAW uh, stewards, leaders throughout his career.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the most powerful things about the book is the way you show how these ideas about race continually um, uh, continually morph in order to uh, protect white privilege and white um, affluence um, and power. And this really, in in your epilogue, you talk about the um, recession of 2008 and how that's really impacted black communities much more um, harshly than whites and and other minorities.
0: Yes, it's an... Obviously important that we realize that although race is a myth, the effects of this myth have been devastating Mm -hmm. and leave us with structural elements today in American society. Um, A couple of examples from the recession of 2008, historically black men and women have been disproportionately represented in public sector employment. Mm But with the cutbacks uh, at the local, state, national level, after 2008, many of these public sector workers lost their jobs. Also, uh, because of these predatory mortgage lenders, Mm -hmm. uh, many black homeowners
1: uh, went into foreclosure. That was a great example of uh, the way the the racial ideology changes, that earlier blacks had been um, uh, couldn't get mortgages. Under right. redlining,
0: the, yes, for many generations, redlining kept blacks, middle class blacks, uh, from owning their homes because they lived in black areas, and banks said these are areas that are off limits. Yes, and so it is a reverse now for those uh, lenders to go in and to make a point of finding the most vulnerable people, offering them mortgages at very high rates, and then repossessing their houses.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Well, the the other area where this really um, comes into play today is in the election of our first African-American president. And um, we tend to think... I I think people generally have the idea that in history, contradictions will resolve themselves somehow or that our ideologies ought to not be contradictory. But one of the things this book shows is just how these contradictions are um, uh, unresolvable, right? And so... uh, Obama challenges the stereotypes of the race myth by, um, with his Harvard education, his community service, his strong family, his, um, uh, his unflappable demeanor. And yet this seems to have brought about some of the worst kinds of virulent racist, um, irrational uh, responses
0: Right. So, we, you know, when Obama was elected in 2008, there was much rejoicing over the beginning of a so-called post-racial right. America. And the idea was, if we've elected a black president, then we've overcome this past of racial mythologies and so forth. And, and that, of course, was just not true. Uh, first of all, as I mentioned, the recession had a devastating impact mm-hmm. on black families, disproportionate to white families. And secondly, yes, in times of great economic stress, as I show throughout the book, black people are often identified as scapegoats. And I think we might be seeing something here where Obama, as president, and um, incurs the wrath of uh, people from uh, a different political party, people who are uncomfortable with the fact that the country is becoming more diverse. Uh, and he's sort of um, a proxy for a lot of changes that are happening in the United States today. But it's certainly not true that we can say we live in a colorblind society Mm -hmm. and uh, I would never suggest that, as I said, these structural inequalities uh, in housing, in education, in healthcare, These are very much the product of historic forces and they're very much embedded in America
1: today. Mm -hmm. The the products of historical forces based on the myth of race that that the whole book is about.
0: One of the things I do also is I try and get people to think about the way they use the word race Mm -hmm. because I suggest that by continuing to use the word race, we, we make it concrete. We don't mean to. Not many of us would today buy into to the idea that there are real racial differences in terms of a kind of biological determinism. But the fact of the matter is the term race, race relations, racial disparities, racial differences, these things, these words are used all the time and I'm afraid that people don't stop to think that by using the word there are actually making it concrete in a way that it isn't Mm -hmm.
1: and they know it isn't as well Mm -hmm. and and that's what makes this book a really um, thoughtful and powerful indictment of our thinking about race i think thank you thank you john
0: you can find a transcript of this episode along with supplemental documents suggestions for further reading and correlations to this texas and national educational standards for history and geography on our website blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15 minute history. That's the numerals 1 5 minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15 minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.